I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. I'm really pleased with today's episode. Ascot has been one of Lloyd's great success stories of the past two decades, yet its CEO, Andrew Brooks, doesn't have the sort of public profile that one would expect to go with the job. After many years waiting out the soft market, Ascot is now in aggressive expansion mode, backed by a very patient, very deep pool of capital. Given its cautious and prudent track record, its diversification plans make for fascinating listening. Particularly the thinking behind this historically short-tailed business's controlled entry into the casualty world. In our talk, Andrew is engaging and very open and forthcoming about Ascot's way of doing things. Anyone looking for pointers on how to build a successful underwriting operation that is sustainable over the long term will learn a huge amount over the next half an hour or so. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you could be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Okay, well, Andrew, thank you so much for giving me a bit of your time in this run-up to this one of the busiest renewals we're likely to have most dramatic renewals for a long time ascot was born into a very hard market and was probably the fastest growing syndicate at lloyd's in its early years does this market feel similar to that in any way or if not what's different about it morning mark and uh, thank you for finding the time to speak to me it's greatly appreciated Yeah, there are a lot of similarities between Ascot in 2001 and Ascot in 2020 and the current market that we're seeing. You know, if I think back to 2001, World Trade Center and the tragic events of that day had a profound effect on the market. It actually produced fear in the market. And, you know, if you think every single insurer in the world could face that predicament the following week in a different city or a a different country, it certainly stimulated the market into profound change. And again, very similar to now, it came on the back of three or four years of very, very soft and poor underwriting results, where you almost felt the market was starting to turn. You'd had Petrobras, you had Air Lanka, the Toulouse refinery. And similarly, uh, you've had wildfires, you've had him in 2017. You definitely feel that the market was starting to correct itself. And COVID has been the final nail in that coffin, coupled with casualty reserves and everything else. 
So we are seeing a hardening or a correction in the market on a global scale across most product lines, which is very, very similar to what we saw in 2001, 2002. But I would say what is completely different is the capital position of the market now. If you think back to 2001, this became a capital event for the majority of the market. And um, you look back at the aggregated numbers that Aon Benfield produced for reinsurers, and I think the number at the time was under, it's probably doubled since then. So even with all these losses and COVID and everything else, you're still seeing at the moment that this is more of an earnings event than a capital event. So even though the market is hardening, it is not as dramatic as it was back in that day. And you still have to be very careful about where you put your capital. And you still have to be very mindful that when you're talking about rate rises, the base you're coming from, we've given up huge amounts of premium in every product line over the last five years. So even though we're getting rate rises, you've always got to remember the base rate you're coming from. It's interesting you said about the COVID being the psychological shock. Do you think all proper hard markets need something that shock to the psychological side of the market, that fear? I think... Undoubtedly, you need something that makes people sit up and take notice. And, you know, even if I think back to 2005, the hurricanes, it was really when models started coming in and people looked at Katrina and they went, wow, you know, that tail risk exposure in New Orleans, if I replicated that in Florida, I wouldn't have a business left. So again, it sparked this, wow, I need to look at other ways of monitoring my aggregation And I think World Trade Center was the same and COVID is absolutely the same. I mean, COVID is something that no one could ever envisage. And it is a live cat. We're still in the process of it and still trying to work out what the final quantum is going to be. And you've sort of got a lot of people going, it's not as bad as it's initially, you know, as as we initially thought it was going to be. But again, you go, well, I don't think you can really say that because the event has not finished. And What's going to happen when all the fiscal support from all these governments stops? I mean, the ramifications for that are really, really severe. And I think you will definitely see a spike of credit losses and other losses coming to fruition after that. But I think if you really, really look at the other side of the coin as well, the thing that has really, really shocked people is the investment yield that we cannot generate in this market. And that has really, really spooked people into thinking, right, we need to make a pure underwriting profit. If you go back over time, I started in this market in the 80s, you know, you could run at 105 combined and still make a good return. We've worked out that you're probably going to have to be writing to about 93 combined to make a good ROE. And if you look at markets over time, there are not many markets that come in at 93 combined year on year. So I think if you look at the third quarter earnings reports in the States in particular, a lot of the CEOs there saying the rates, regardless of COVID, needed to go up. But COVID has just exasperated the issue and and made the rating not easier, but it's made it more profound of going, we've just got to address the underlying profitability of the insurance market because it's not fit for purpose at the moment. Andrew, we're awash with capital, which is a big difference from the turn of the millennium and perhaps other hard markets. So how much of that capital do you think you can really deploy to get that 93% combined ratio to produce the sort of returns that you, that you want to be able to promise those investors when they're handing over their cash? And that's a really good question because, I mean, everything is about supply and demand, isn't it? And if you become awash with capital and capacity, then very soon you go into a scenario where the competition inevitably prices go down. But I think 
what we're finding now is it's not just about looking at the technical price of a risk. It's looking at the portfolio management and can you build a sustainable portfolio over time? And by that, I mean, if you tend to look at casualty classes, you look at the deployment of line against premium. And for so many years, the line sizes people were putting out dwarf the premium and the imbalance was always there and always a concern for so many people. And I think that's what's really caused the huge issue. So even though capital will come to the market, and I think inevitably it will, and it has to because we have to make sure that all our clients can get the limits away they need to, but at a price that underwriters can make money at, inevitably this pull and tug from both sides of the fence But what we need to do is build sustainable portfolios. And I think we're seeing that now where people have actually twigged. We've got to reduce our capacity to build a balanced portfolio and then get the technical price that goes with that thereafter. So if the capital comes, I mean, hopefully the capital is going to come in a disciplined manner where it'll be focused on the technical price, but the portfolio management. Now, if we all go in trying to build portfolios on that basis, clients will get the capacity they need, we can build a balanced portfolio, and we can make an underwriting profit that's sufficient for our shareholders and people to keep in the insurance business. Because my real concern is if capacity dries up to such an extent that clients can't get their limits away, the number of captives that will come into play, and we're already seeing you know, a huge amount of captive uptake and inquiries about forming captives, we will kill the golden goose that is our client base, and that's not good for anyone. So in which case, are you welcoming of some of the new capital formation that we're seeing with the class of 2020? Do you think that shit's all welcome and it probably won't, it's not going to upset the apple cart and suddenly put a big dampener on all the rate rises? I think, Mark, that's a good question. I think, I mean, Ascot was new in 2001. And technically, what we're trying to do in North America and Bermuda, we are technically, you could look at us as a new startup in those areas of the world. So I think it's very wrong for incumbents to say we don't want new entrants to come to the market because everyone at one stage is a new entrance. I think it's when people come to the market and whether they're bringing value. And if the new markets come and they can genuinely lead business and they can actually add value. I support people coming to the market. I think when you look at Lloyd's as an example, allowing an influx of people during the soft cycle is just damaging. I think now it's all dependent on all of us to make sure that there is enough capacity in the market to service our clients' needs. And undoubtedly, new capital will come to the market because it's the economics and The supply and demand curve has changed and you can't stop capital finding its way to the insurance industry. All I would say is far easier for capital to come to the market now than it was back in 2001, 2002. And I think that's something that should be applauded. I think the fact the industry has adapted to get capital in to help clients at this time, it should be applauded. So Andrew, is the best thing about a hard market for you that ability to build that balanced portfolio, i.e. to be actually shown business that you might not have been shown in a soft market because it wasn't budging? During a hard market, should you be pushing to build that balanced portfolio and prioritise that over actually just jacking up the rates as hard as you can? Yeah, you're right. I always am a firm believer that if you dabble in something, you can write the best five risks, but one of those that year through no fault of your own and through no fault of the client can have a loss. And if you've got an imbalance between your premium and limits put out, you've inevitably 
either you're relying on reinsurance to get you out of a hole or you've got a gross underwriting loss. So the hard market definitely enables people to get a far more balanced and robust portfolio. We've always tried to do that at Ascot, which is why we've had to shrink lines of business down profoundly over time to keep some semblance of balance between the gross premium and the net premium and the average line we're deploying. And I think it's just systematic of where the market goes that as the market softens, people try and sustain their top line premium. And to do that, you just see over time, if you look at any cycle and go back and look at all the figures, people's maximum lines just start creeping back up, back up, back up to hold top line. And that's something for us. And I think the market should be acutely aware of is sometimes be better off reducing top line and keeping the balance within the portfolio to actually get yourself through an underwriting period that's going to be longer than two or three years of a hard market. It should get you through 10 years of underwriting. So you'd say that that class of 2020 sounds like it's got a decent opportunity and that they're likely to stick around. If they're able to add value and build a decent balance portfolio, then they're probably welcome and they'll probably do okay. And I think, Mark, the big thing is getting to the market. It's very easy to enter the reinsurance space because it's a fewer number of contracts. But, you know, it's, again, it's, it's highly volatile. It requires a lot of capital. I think trying to build a balanced portfolio where you can get your elasticity around results is limited, takes time and is really, really difficult to do. And whether they'll have enough time to do that before the market drops off or starts to decrease, I don't know. You'd have to ask them. But um, that's something that we're very happy that we invested heavily in Bermuda and, and North America two years really before this market came so that we can actually build the portfolio in this market ready for a sustained underwriting process over 10 years rather than just two years. The big part of the Ascot story has been that expansion and that capital formation in Bermuda and your big expansion plans in the US. Why don't you run me through what the scale of your appetite and that ambition is in that US and Bermuda markets? I mean, you've only got to look at the Lloyds, buy to the apple you get in Lloyds. It's a big apple in Lloyds, don't get me wrong, but in round dollar turns, it's between 45 and 50 billion with an average acquisition costs, call it 25 to 30%, and it's probably pushing to the 30%. And then you look at the US market, where the commercial market is probably over 350 billion. And of course, the acquisition costs from the analysis we've done is probably down at 15%. And there's a lot more, what I would call non-catastrophe business in there that is accessible in the States. And similarly, Bermuda is more akin to the Lloyd's model, but again, there's a lot of business that goes to Bermuda that doesn't necessarily go to Lloyd's, particularly things like excess casualty. And um, it gives us the opportunity to build a far more balanced portfolio. We've always been the advocate of looking at where we think you can make an underwriting profit in certain lines of business. And we've certainly never really been that keen to write US casualty business in Lloyd's. You have to think, why does a lot of that business come to Lloyd's? I think in this market, where the wholesale market in the States is buoyant, yes, there are a lot of opportunities to write casualty business in Lloyd's for the right reasons. But in a soft market, it's like, well, why is a lot of that business coming there? One, I think it's because it's probably, dare I say it, the widest form and the cheapest price. So we want to build sustained business in Bermuda and North America. And our appetite is to get a good market share of 
all of the lines of business that we've got an appetite in and we're entering a lot of casualty classes that we wouldn't have written in the Lloyd's arena. But again, very happy to take those on in the States and in Bermuda, but do it at the right time and do it very thoughtfully and hire extremely talented underwriters as we've always done at Ascot who've got a following and who can genuinely lead business and that's what it's all about for us you've got to lead business if you lead business you can control the pricing and you can be very comfortable with the wordings you're writing the business on and build hopefully a sustainable business that will see you fit for purpose over time and do you think with potentially very dangerous and volatile casualty business to get comfortable with it do you think the underwriter has to be closer to the source of that business and be closer to the relationships around that business than sitting in london absolutely and i think you've got to understand the state by state tort system and legal system you're writing the unknown so you have to be as close to the risk as possible and be as close to the legal entity that you're writing as possible so that you can understand as much the complexity around it And I think sometimes we're naive that particularly when we're just giving excess capacity, we've got a good underlying deductible, doesn't really make much difference. You know, I'm going to deploy capacity up here and you get a very, very volatile portfolio where, again, the limit to premium ratio is unbalanced. But you have no idea what's happening to the awards in the States and just class action filings and everything else. And we are, with our loss picks in casualty, we're looking very carefully at you know, how much credit do you actually take for genuine rate rise as opposed to how much of it is a rebalancing of the macroeconomics around the portfolio and our social inflation, if it's DNO class action filings. And we're finding, we genuinely believe that a lot of the rate rise that's being generated is not genuine rate rise. It's a rebalancing of the macroeconomics and everything else that goes around the portfolio. And once you've hit a certain threshold, we are prepared to take credit for some rate rise that we see above that. But there is no doubt that the casualty market in the States has, well, globally has been underpriced for many, many years compared to the awards that have been coming out. If I think of one thing that's going to be a problem for the insurance industry over the next three or four years, it's the deficit of reserves on casualty portfolios. So I think that's something that the market's going to have to deal with. Presumably it's not affecting you because you're a new-ish entrant and you don't have a huge back book that's going to deteriorate. Yeah, we're a new entrant in North America. We've had the ability to write casualty in the syndicate. And in fact, we recruited a team five or six years ago from, I don't mind saying, from QBE, Syndicate 386. But again, their budgets have never been achieved because quite frankly, we just don't think we'd have made money by putting that business on our books. We're now putting our foot down through the gears and starting to write a fair bit of international cash business on the Lloyd's platform because the opportunities are there. But to be honest, Mark, it's incredibly difficult trying to do the right thing when I'm not saying we've got this right, we might have got it very wrrong, but we just didn't feel as a business we could write casualty business during 2014 to 18 in any great shape at all. And now we're seeing that opportunity. We're pleased we didn't because trying to deal with the legacy that's coming down the wire would be very difficult. And trying to attract people to the platform would be very difficult if you're asking them to come in to re-underwrite a portfolio that you've already written is is desperate for people. So the fact it's a greenfield site for us is, I think, attracting a lot of people to come and work with us. Ascot's always been born as a short tail specialty outfit and being really expert at that. How long has it taken you to get to be comfortable in casualty? I think there's so many different areas of casualty. 
there's certain areas for us that we would always look at and just go, we think that is, I'm not saying unwritable because others write it, but to build a sustainable portfolio is incredibly difficult. One being auto, we look closely at that. That's an incredibly difficult class to write. And again, is incredibly dangerous when a lot of portfolios have underlying schedules and auto is always on there and particularly marine portfolios that come to London we would look at them and go the only reason they're coming is is that they're buying cheap excess auto really so if you go through that process in each line you can get comfortable with certain sectors very quickly excess casualty again for fortune 500 14,000 business for certain products and again you can't say this is representative of the entire portfolio that you could build but you need to look at within the sector what's profitable and what's not so a pharmaceutical company is very very different to another company and and vice versa so when you go in you've got to be very mindful of trying to build a balanced portfolio within that by line size by product or company product within that and if you can do that and you can understand the wordings and understand the company you're writing i think you can generally build a business but to your point earlier, Mark, you've got to be able to have the access to the distribution to actually get enough risks into the funnel to actually look at the opportunities and go, okay, we can build a portfolio because we've got enough risk selection coming in to make it a palatable process for us. Because otherwise, it's inevitable, isn't it? If you only get 50 risks into your hopper, you've really got to write 50 risks. And again, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you know you're not going to get a balanced portfolio and you're going to get some losses that I'm afraid even though they're probably great companies, you haven't got the balance there and you've just written them because you feel you have to. On that diversification journey that you've been going on, you'd rule out some of those excess marine and excess auto classes. Is there anything else that you'd rule out as, as you continue to diversify? The one area for us is, again, large cyber risks. is something, again, we've looked at that quite carefully. We actually have a very good cyber team in the US, but they're concentrating on the lower risk profile. We sort of look at that, the big limit cyber business, and you go, well, how is it actually rated? What is the right price? And also there is so much that we don't know about the security that a company's got and how often they're being attacked and everything. That's an area for us at the moment. We're still trying to understand it. And we're probably not the sharpest tool in the toolbox because we seem to be way down the intellectual acumen on on cyber compared to the rest of the market. But it is something that it still makes us a bit uncomfortable, but um, certainly on some of the smaller bits, again, where we understand the wording and particularly when you've got smaller limits and you can build, that's my point, a very, very balanced portfolio. Even if you lose four or five of them, you've still got a chance in there of making money. Fine, but the volatility and the imbalance in the portfolio as you build up to that bigger cyber area becomes more profound and the attacks aren't getting any less. And I think with COVID, it's going to get worse and the ransomware attacks are all over the place at the moment. So that's an area that we think is quite high risk at the moment. Someone's presenting you something that's in excess of $500 million, but if it's a massive company, it's almost like writing a primary anyway, because it's all going to blow out in one go, isn't it? I think that's the thing is, are you better off just writing the primary five, 10 million? Because you're probably exposed to the same event all the way through the program. And you've just hit the nail on the head is how we think about it at the moment. And and it seems that way sometimes with some of the really big DNO as well. You just think actually it's either going to go or it's not. Yeah, absolutely. You've got some fantastic long-term capital backing. Do you think you'll need new investors to fulfill all of your growth ambitions at the moment? 
We are very, very privileged and lucky to have CBB behind us. They've been wonderfully supportive over the last few years, particularly if you think they completed their purchase of Ascot back at the end of 2016. It's been a pretty fraught underwriting period, 2017, 18, 19, and their support has been unwavering. So if I put it into contextually, Mark, when we've asked them for capital, it's been there. And in fact, we asked them to, after him, put a billion dollars of capital into Bermuda to get our reinsurance vehicle up and running. And very quickly had to go back with our tail between our legs three months later going, I'm afraid the market's not where we think it was going to be and we don't want to use the capital. And um, I think their response to that says a lot about them. It was just like, okay, that's why we bought you to make underwriting decisions to look after our capital. And in fact, it was probably the best thing that's happened because 2018, if we'd written a lot of business, we'd have had to write through programs and we'd have been hit badly by the wildfires. So actually, it was probably the best thing. And actually, Bermuda's kind of caught itself up now from the plan we originally did to where we are now. We're almost on track. So I think earning our spurs like that is really important. I think you have to build trust with your shareholder over time. And I think we're working hard on that. And I think we do have that. So obviously, it's their prerogative. They have very, very strong relationships with a lot of very, very good PE firms and sovereign wealth funds. And again, if they wanted to bring someone in alongside them, of course, we'd always be amenable to that. But it's not been a topic we've had. And um, we've got enough capital to support our growth aspirations for 2021. And in fact, we've even given a flex plan that it could be a minimum of X and a maximum of Y. And again, that's not being balked at. It's been like, okay, well, when you know, come back and talk to us. So it's been a happy learning process. That Yeah, definitely. They're very willing to listen and be part of the journey with us, which is phenomenal, to be honest. Obviously, you've also dipped your toe into the world of third-party capital management with Canro Re Sidecar. Yeah. How's the fundraising for that gone? Because is that going to be supporting your retro book in yep. Bermuda? Yeah. Yeah. That's um, predominantly at the moment is just pure retro. And we did it last year. And in fact, we did it with another division within CBB. And again, they've been super helpful in introducing us to, again, talk about their relationships. They've got very, very strong relationships with various entities. And we are in discussions with them at the moment. But again, we're not trying to grow can row to an inordinate size one because the retro market is not the biggest market in the world it's certainly sizable but you don't want to destabilize it but also we have told all the supporters of can row that we are going to be part of the process we're not going to be an entity that just writes on their behalf and takes no risk so we can only take x amount of retro into our business because of the capital and the fact Obviously, it's unreinsurable. So again, we don't want to end up where we're just, for the sake of fees, just loading our capital base up and our aggregates up just to fulfill some ROE hurdles. But it's definitely a key part of our strategy. And we call it an underwriting service. We've got Ethos as well, our MGA, which again, writes some products that Ascot has no risk appetite for, but other people do. And again, it writes products where Ascot has limited appetite and we can't write 100% of business. Again, we would definitely look to the M&A business we put together. Again, we lead that, but we've got a substantial Lloyds Consortium behind us. It's a real key strategy for us is being able to access third-party capital to build product. 
And certainly from a Lloyd's perspective, we're very keen on the consortium concept to help the subscription market penetrate markets that genuinely write business 100%. So it's something we're looking to do. And I think technology will play a huge part of that with portals and everything else over time. So it's a real key focus for us. So it's more of a pure underwriting strategy and also to give you that more meaningful presence and be able to solve your clients' problems rather than an asset manager strategy. Exactly. Yeah. The focus is, Mark, it's got to make an underwriting profit. We're not EBITDA underwriters in Ethos. We want to have partners that value the underwriting we bring to it and it makes an underwriting profit. And if it makes an underwriting profit, by de facto, it will make us money because we're going to profit commission and we will obviously get some fees for doing it. But we're not an EBITDA driven MGA model. You mentioned about technology there. You've been involved with InsureTech. You've engaged with it through the Lloyd's Lab with that parcel business on the marine side. That's an investment as well as a collaboration, isn't it? Yes. How strategic is that engagement for you? How excited are you about some of these collaborations? Extremely. I think the message from our shareholder is if you don't look at technology and you don't think about technology, then you are going to wither and die in the insurance industry at some stage. And we look at it at two stages. You've got to invest in technology, be it specific projects like Parcel, I'll talk about that in a minute, or just technology generally. If you don't invest in technology, you won't even go through the survive stage. By that, we think the future at Lloyd's work is phenomenal. We think Blueprint 2, the way it's structured, where getting the data correct before it gets to the gateway at Lloyd's is a phenomenal idea. But it does mean that everybody in the Lloyd's entity and generally in the market is going to have to be API enabled at some stage. And that's going to require a lot of work, particularly if you've got legacy systems and it's going to require a huge investment. But if you don't do it, you're not going to survive. And we're very keen on the fact that if you don't survive, you can't thrive. And the technology eventually will all let us thrive because inevitably it's going to reduce acquisition costs, um, and rightly so. But also the amount of data and just data quality and the processes that we can go will be so efficient if we just touch the data once at the beginning and never have to touch it again because the quality is so good and so pure. It's really important. And I think everybody now is waking up to that. And I think COVID has been a massive eye opener. And dare I say, everyone's going how well the insurance business has coped with COVID. And I absolutely agree with that. But from our perspective, have we actually seen any reduction in our costs. In fact, no, if anything, our costs have gone up because we're having to backfill electronic placing systems. We're touching more data. We're having to move data from one system to another. So the sooner we all get on the journey of getting the data quality and API enabled systems sorted, the better the market will be. And I sense a huge change on that. And then as far as investments in tech companies go, we're an underwriting business, but where we see unique opportunities that we can actually invest in to really help the underwriting process over time. We are very happy to invest in those and we have a shareholder who's very happy to help us on that journey. And Parcel is a really good example of that. And the technology that their CEO, Ben Hubbard, produces is phenomenal. And we think not only will it help with COVID, obviously through the syndicate box we've set up, but obviously the technology of 
having these chips that are temperature sensitive and can actually monitor things for cargo and for claims adjusting and everything over time will be a huge benefit to the market. Even before COVID, we were starting to sell the technology to a lot of our cargo clients, particularly people that were shipping high risk products, having temperature sensitive chips in all their cargoes was fantastic. It's where you as an insurer are providing much more than just the solution. It's almost like where you're giving the, the safety lock or the, yeah. you know, the steam boiler you know, with the safety valve. Panel. Absolutely. And um, we think there's a lot of technology that will come that will help with that over time. Blueprint 2, massive thumbs up. That core irrefutable data standard is what we all need. Once we're all running on those core irrefutable data standard rails, can we pile on all that complexity? For example, we've seen something with Key from Brit, algorithmic underwriting, automatic provision of capital which is obviously going to be incredibly efficient. Does that appeal to you because of its efficiency? I presume it does. But does it worry you because you could make a big mistake quite quickly? I think that technology has been around for many, many years, In particularly in the personal lines business. I'm short on motor cars in certain areas, reduce the rates to get the business there. And I still think there is a lot of business that that technology can be used around, particularly you know, homogenous business, even a lot of the MGA business Lloyds do, there's no doubt that that technology can be used, blockchain can be used for a lot of that. I think the difficulty comes, at what point do you switch from that to going, wow, that's trying to write that class of business within the context of machine learning is probably quite difficult. And I've got to look at casualty and just go, that's for me, something that I would question and go, wow. And that's quite scary. So I think there's definitely a place for it. But I think, again, if you think of the types of business that are much more cost effective for doing it, but the whole concept of following the market, we're a firm believer that people should be allowed to just follow in certain lines of business, but where they've got the infrastructure to deal with it, because there's a difference between following somebody when you've got your own modeling and your own aggregation procedures in place as to being a complete, basically someone coming and just writing an index of the Lloyd's market. Yes, okay, I can get that. But again, to your point, Mark, how do you know they're not going to make a profound mistake in going, well, we've just got too much accumulation and we're monitoring it and having the risk management around it for the market is going to be really key. Do you think it's worrying that you'll have leaders, maybe human leaders, and then they'll put down a 20 million line, but then they might have 980 million following them almost instantaneously? Does that worry because you don't get that second pair of eyes? Or do you think that those electronic eyes are going to be actually just as valid as the human eyes? I think valid in certain classes, but I think there needs to be a rational, okay, how much capacity do you actually want on that basis? Should it be the last 20% of the risk or 25% of the risk? So you're still getting this peer review by other markets. I mean, we're a great believer that the subscription market is a great component of your peer review within five minutes of you writing a risk will someone follow you or not and um, we're a big advocate of having that but again we absolutely buy into the fact that you don't need that for 100 percent of the placement so i think there's definitely a halfway house and all these things which will make the market more efficient and more effective for both underwriters brokers and clients but i think there needs to be some rational expectation, as you say, that we don't want to go back to the good old days of the 80s where you had all the energizers and everything else and 1% line meant an energy placement was done with no one really knowing what they'd written and everyone going, well, how did that get placed? And I think that's a very dangerous, as was proved, market to end up in.
And suppose, do you think that an algorithm really is not going to be any good at constructing a portfolio? It'll see the single risk in front of it, and it won't really think of the big picture. That, that's my biggest concern, is how you build the risk management around that about, yes, this risk is great, and it's technically so well-priced, I'm going to put all my capacity out. And you end up with a peak spike, and it's not picked up. You always dread as an underwriter having an outsized loss that no one else has got, or a risk loss that no one else has got. And you're kind of building yourself up for a fall unless you've got really good processes around that. And again, I think that goes back to the market having risk management processes that we're all comfortable with to mitigate that exposure. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I've really, really enjoyed our talk. And, um, you know, I think I've run through all the questions I was going to talk about. So thanks so much, Andrew. Have a have a good renewal season. Have a good uh, thanks, good, good expansion, I hope. And, and good luck with everything. And come and check in with us sometime in 2021. Will do. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.advantage.com. The voice of insurance.com.